So here we are, night five of our six-part seminar. One more night next week. We're talking about investing tonight, trading the talents. And next week, we are going to be talking about the financial planning pyramid. Now, <clears throat> whenever people think about investing, I have to preface myself uh, in my presentation because I'm not here to teach you what to buy or how to trade or what investments you should put your money in. That's something between you and your financial advisor or you and God. Tonight, we're really dealing with principles, okay, guidelines to help you hopefully form your own uh, investment philosophy and also hopefully steer us clear from the scams. That's actually one of the big motives of our presentation tonight. And for those of you who have missed previous sessions, here is a QR code and a link uh, to catch up on what you have missed. And everything that we're doing tonight is going to be recorded there as well with the slides and everything. And I believe the weekly relays that have been sent out included, have included the link so you can get, get it there as well. We've got a few more cameras up. I will give you a moment to snap that before we move on. Five, four, three, two, one, we're going to move on. Okay. We have to ask this question to begin. Investing. Why and what for? Why do we need to invest at all? I want to turn our attention to the Bible first of all. This is found in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. You remember the story. The master had three servants. He went away on a long journey. He gave some uh, five talents, one five talents, two talents, and then another person had one talent. The one that had five, how much did he get? Five more. The one that had two, two more. We're going to get to this in a moment, but what rate of return did they get on their money? That was 100%. They doubled their money. Not bad. But what about the last guy? He buried his talent. Did he lose the money? No. He actually preserved it. But what did Jesus say? Or what did the master say, I should say, uh, to the servant when he comes back and finds out that this man buried his talent? You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So here, very clearly, uh, Jesus, through the illustration and the parable of the master in this parable, he says that the talents that God has placed within our care should be improved upon. We should grow them. And yes, spiritually, there are many applications to what those talents represent. And usually we make those our primary application. You know, the, the gift of time, the gift of influence, the gift of physical strength and speech and our musical ability and all of the, such things, right? And it seems odd that the very thing that is used as the symbol in the parable, money, is often excluded. It's like everything, talents refer to everything that God given, has given to us except the one thing that is actually used in a parable as the symbol. Well, of course, that cannot be. The talent certainly must include within it the idea of the money that God has placed into our stewardship. So we need to improve upon that, to increase or to invest God's money and so that he might have his own with interest. Now, another reason why we need to invest is found in this verse, 1 Timothy 5, 8. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
You might be looking at this and say, yeah, I understand that, but what does this have to do with investing? This just sounds like I have to be a hard worker and bring home the bacon, vegan bacon, of course, stripples. <laughs> and we provide for the family. But what does this provide for their own? Well, it's because there's this idea of we're not just providing for today, we have to provide for the future as well. As particularly for us men, we're the head of the household, we have to think about the future, and that requires saving. But there's a problem when we're thinking about the future. Here is a graph of the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar from 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, to 2017. And what it says here is that the dollar has lost more than 96% of its value since 1913. If I could put it another way, a dollar, if you had a dollar in 1913 and you held on to that dollar bill, you could buy the equivalent of four cents worth of materials, consumer goods today. So a dollar has lost 96% of its purchasing power. And so if we're to provide for our family, we have to reckon with this erosive power of inflation because if we're just stashing money in the mattress, so even if we live you know, as long as from 1913 uh, until today, we might have lost 96% of the purchasing uh, power of our money. So that's another reason. We're going to come back to this point of inflation uh, later on. But here's a counterpoint, okay? And this is an important counterbalance to this notion of investing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy. I might in include inflation destroys, right? Where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the counterpoint here? We are not to lay up our treasures on the earth. The point of investing is not to pile up massive amounts of money and treasure and just have it all go to the moth and the rust and inflation. So yes, do we need to provide for our family wisely and prudently and deal with the realities of inflation and all of such things? Yes, but also not be greedy and covetous and pile up treasures uh, for ourselves on earth. And so here we are, the summary of what we've discussed so far. This is the foundation, the, the scriptural, biblical, principle foundation. As God's servants, we are responsible to increase our talents, which include money, as stewards of God. The objective for investing that money is to make provision for the future needs of our loved ones, which requires defending against inflation. Okay, that's the second point. And number three, the purpose is not, or is to have enough not to hoard or to become attached to our earthly treasure. Is that clear? We're on the same page here. So then we have to reckon also with this unfortunate reality that there is no perfect investment this side of the bank of heaven. We live in a sinful world and there is no such thing known to man that only has upside with no downside. An investment that only has reward with no risk. It doesn't exist. And so we have to wrestle with what, what the best options are, okay? Based on our imperfect options, we need to weigh the pros and cons and come up with the most prudent path for our particular situation. And this is where I want to share with you tonight 10 principles. It's really nine, but you'll understand why when we get to number 10. 
that we can use to develop a scorecard to help us evaluate the desirability or appropriateness of certain types of investments. And you can use it to help you screen out whether something is appropriate for you or not. So we're going to get right into it. First principle, number one, never invest in something you don't understand. If you don't remember anything else that I say, just don't forget this one. Because if you remember this one rule, you'll never get scammed. Never invest in something you don't understand. The Bible actually tells us a few things about this. Through wisdom is an house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Not ignorance. Notice, ignorance does not lead to riches. It requires wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So what do I mean? Never invest in something you don't understand. Okay, what do I need to understand? Well, I'm going to give you four questions that you need to ask and be able to answer. Number one, how does this investment make money? Where does the return come from? If you put your money into the bank and the bank pays you an interest, where does that come from? It doesn't grow on trees, right? The interest comes from the profits of the bank and things that they loan out. Well, what about if I buy a stock in a business? Where, does the, where do the dividends come from? Where does the appreciated stock price come from? If I buy a Bitcoin, how does that go up in value? If I buy a house, how does that make money? How, does, how do you earn a return on the investment that you're placing your money in? And of course, we can spend all day talking about this, going through each individual type of asset, but this is where you have to do your own homework. If somebody comes up with a proposition that, oh, I've got this incredible scheme that is going to earn you, you know, 100% rate of return overnight. Just trust me on this. Uh, turn around and run. Because clearly, especially if they cannot tell you how it makes money. All right, the next point you have to understand about any investment is how can it lose money? And this is a question of risk. What are the risks? Uh, let me see if I can give you a good example. Oh, yeah. This is actually a very kind of recent example. Do you remember, have you heard of Silicon Valley Bank? Just a few months ago, Silicon Valley Bank was in the news. A bunch of rich entrepreneurs and, 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 and tech startup businesses had their cash in Silicon Valley Bank. And we don't, we don't think of a bank as an investment. But even a bank can lose money. Can you believe it? Well, what happened? They had money that exceeded the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit. And so when the, the bond portfolio of this Silicon Valley bank went upside down because of all of the increase in interest rates from the Federal Reserve and they had long duration bonds, I know this is all geeky stuff, but what happened was they lost a lot of book value and they had to sell their assets at a loss in which it tanked the business and all of these entrepreneurs were at risk of losing their money. Even in something as safe as a bank, an FDIC-insured bank, if we don't know the risks, we run the, we run the risk of losing our money. So in any investment, we have to ask the, money, uh, ask the question, how can it lose money? What's, what are the risks involved? And if someone is trying to sell you on an investment and they can't articulate that to you, or they won't articulate it to you, please walk away. All right, next one. What are the costs? There's no free lunch. When it comes to investing, there's always a cost. 
Is there a trading fee? Is there an administration fee? Is there a fee for transacting and withdrawing? Right? All of, is there a spread on the cost of the asset? Are there closing costs in the case of real estate? Costs all up and down. Some are hidden, some are not well transparent. You got to understand those things. And we're going to talk about fees and costs in the next, the next point. But of course, taxes, right? The only two things that are sure in life are death and taxes. Well, with investing, that is certainly the case. And then number four, what are the rules and regulations? You have to understand whether you are playing by the rules. And I'll just give you a recent example. Cryptocurrency is all the rage. Well, one of the issues is that a lot of cryptocurrency, right now, there are, uh, there's quite a turf war going on between the cryptocurrency industry as well as the SEC. The SEC says a lot of the cryptocurrency are securities. But the people in the industry say, no, they're not securities. And because of that, there's a, a lot of uncertainty on regulation. And depending on where things end up, entire businesses might close down and there are a bunch of them you know, being sued by the government. And these are the types of issues that we might inadvertently get ourselves into if we do not understand. Okay, so I know a lot of that was gobbledygook, but the point I'm trying to make is you gotta know the rules and the regulations. So the rule of thumb, if it is too good to be true, it probably is. I remember there was a friend of mine once who contacted me from Southeast Asia. There was an investment. It, it, apparently, it has something to do with investing in gold. And they said, oh, the returns are something over 60% annual rate of return. Immediately, my ears perked up. 60% annual yield? Um, Warren Buffett is one of the greatest investors of all time. Do you know what his annual rate of return was or has been over the course of his career? 19%. 19%, which is roughly double the S&P 500. That's why he's so famous. He doubled the stock market over a period of 50 years. So no wonder the guy is so lionized in the business world. Well, guess what? This investment, no-name gold investment company, supposedly can beat Warren Buffett by three times? Bernie, uh, not, sorry. Yeah, Bernie Madoff. Yes, that's his name, right? Bernie Madoff was the architect of the largest Ponzi scheme in history. And he only promised 10 to 15% annualized rate of return. That's why he lasted so long, because he was prudent enough to not over-promise and under-deliver. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And as it turns out, some of my friends lost all their money because that was a scam. Okay, that's what happened. Simplicity trumps complexity. If you're thinking of an investment and somebody has all sorts of hoops you have to jump through and you have to do this and then buy that and transfer it over here and send me this and all of these various, you know, you have to contort yourself in all these weird positions in order to get a rate of return, there's probably something wrong. Simplicity trumps complexity. If something is, if you had to choose between something that's simple or complex, usually the simple one is the better option. And so if you don't understand, walk away, okay? Because there is a thing, we have a bias. We feel the sting of losing money far more than the pleasure of making money. They actually did some research on this. I don't have the exact number, but it's something like, you know, the, if, how much money do you have to gain in order to equal the pain that you feel for a certain dollar amount? It's like if you lose 
like the equivalent, if you lost $50, you would need something like $500 to feel equivalent on the other side or something like that. So protecting yourself on the downside is certainly something to keep in mind. So never invest in something you don't understand. Now the related second point is we're gonna come back to the idea of costs, okay? Be mindful of costs and taxes. The rule of thumb is that lower cost investments beat higher cost investments. Why is that? Compounding cost, meaning annual expenses and taxes, will negate compounding interest and higher returns. Just like your interest can compound, your costs are also compounding. Beware of high broker fees and commissions and hidden transaction charges because they come out of your returns. And the way to mitigate against higher taxes is to use tax-sheltered accounts. So now, so one of the easiest ways to improve your investment return is simply to lower your investment costs. If you're paying less up front, guess what? You're going to have more on the back end. The, the most simplest explanation is when you buy a house, the less you pay in closing costs, the more you're going to keep in the value of the home. Isn't that right? So that's the basic explanation, but that goes across the board, whether you're buying a stock or a mutual fund or whatever it might be. So let me illustrate this to you. This is a graph of a portfolio value from investing $100,000 over 20 years. So this is from 2013 to 2033. So the blue line, and all of these are growing at the same rate of return, 4% annual return. And the blue line at the top is if there was only a 0.25%, so a quarter of a percent percent of annual costs or fees. If you want to sound intelligent, that is also called 25 basis points. So if you hear it in the news, 25 basis points is 0.25%. It's right at $210,000. So over 20 years at 4%, 0.25% fees, you're, um, you, you, know, you more than double your money. Okay, that's not too bad. Well, what if we increase the fees, annual fee, to half a percent or 50 basis points? Well, you lose $10,000, okay, over the course of 20 years. $10,000 less in your re total return. And that's the red line. But the green line is if you have a 1% annual fee, so now you're a full 75 basis points higher in fees every year, and you will come out $30,000 less. And what does that mean in terms of a percentage? So over the course of 20 years, a 0.75% difference in fees results in a greater than 14% decrease in your total returns. 0.75% return versus, or a fee rather, versus a reduction of 14% in your total return. That is significant. And you can imagine over time, and as the balance increases, this only magnifies further. So even a small difference in fees over a long period of time can make a significant difference. That's why costs and taxes are so important. So to mitigate against taxes, we have things here, at least in America, called tax-sheltered accounts. So for retirement, we have the 401k, 403b. This is an employer-sponsored plan. Um, and if you have one of them and they have a match, you always take the match. It's the closest thing to free money because if they match you dollar for dollar, let's say your employer matches you your first 5% that you put in and they match you dollar for dollar for another 5%, Here's a math question. What is your rate of return on that money? It's a 100% rate of return. You just doubled your money, okay? So you always take the match. And then there's also the IRA or the Roth IRA. 
And those are retirement accounts. And then for college savings, there's the 529 plan and also the ESA, also called the, edu uh, called the education savings account. And then for health savings, there's a one called the health savings account or the HSA. And I'm not gonna bore you to death and go through each of these different types of accounts. I mean, whole books have been written about them and you can research them on, online. But I will mention that for most people, the Roth IRA is the best place to start. Okay? The Roth IRA is a tax-free account. You put in after-tax money, and then thereafter, the money is never taxed again. Did you hear me? Never taxed again, unless you violate the rules, meaning you withdraw money uh, early and for non-qualified reasons. But a Roth IRA, you can even pull out the basis, meaning the amount that you contribute, you can pull out at any time with no penalty. Only the growth ends up being penalized if you pull out before the due time. Now, a lot of other caveats and, and, and fine print regarding that, but for most people, and because this is a commonly asked question, where should I start? Start your research with a Roth IRA, see if you qualify for that. The second account that I think is the most valuable for most people, if they qualify, and not very many people do, is a health savings account. The health savings account has triple tax savings. You can put in pre-tax money, it grows tax-free, and if you withdraw it for qualified medical expenses, it is also tax-free, meaning this is one of the rare cases where you can actually have something, some, a portion of your income not taxed at all, uh, all the way through your use of it. So these are some accounts that you can consider. If you have particular tax questions, uh, you can contact your CPA, of course. So this leads us to point number three, and this is back to where we began. We need to beat inflation. So I want to re revisit that story of the talents and notice a few things. Number one, the wicked servant didn't lose the talent. He simply failed to grow it. And inflation is e the erosion of our purchasing power. And so to not beat inflation is burying our talent. Imagine we took the talent, we kept it for the Lord from 1913 to 2017. He comes back and we hand him four cents. How do you think he's going to feel about that? I don't think that's the right thing to do. So the question is, well, what's a reasonable rate of return then? What, do we, what, what kind of yield are we going to have to look for to be able to meet this threshold of beating inflation? So the faithful servants were told they doubled their talents. And as you have astutely recognized, that is a 100% total return on their assets. Now, how long did it take them? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. All it says is that the master returned after a long time. So we know this was a long-term investment. They didn't flip around and, and somehow double their money overnight. So the question is, what was their annual rate of return? And I'm going to throw into this equation approximately 3% annual rate of inflation. Why do I pick that number? From the beginning of the America until today, roughly between 3 and 3.5% 3 annual inflation and this is because some years it's very low, some years like last year is very high, but it averages out over a long period of time to roughly three to three and a half percent. That's where I get that number. So I did some number crunching and I just picked three dates because I think it'll illustrate the point. Let's suppose the master was gone for 10 years. If it were a 10 year time horizon, what rate of return did these servants require to double their money? approximately 10% rate of return. What if it was a 15-year period? Well, it, they would only have had to uh, had a roughly 8% rate of return. What if it was 20 years? 
Then it goes down to 6.5%. And you can see the trend. If it was 25 or 30 or 40 years, that number that you would need to double your money just keeps going down. So what does this illustrate to us? When we think of the story of the parable of the talents, we think, oh, they doubled their money. What kind of excessive risk did they take? Were they starting, like, you know, Teslas? You know, companies like Tesla? Or are they investing in Bitcoin? Like, how do they turn around and grow their money? Well, you know, between 6 and 10% rate of return. That's actually fairly conservative and quite realistic within the world of investing. We're not reaching, you know, for even Warren Buffett level of returns here. And so what am I saying? The Bible gives us a fairly reasonable expectation, uh, even though I'm not saying necessarily that it's the prescription here, but the description that is given to us is actually within the very much the realm of possibility. Because the S&P 500, over the long period of its history, its roughly average is within this range, depending on who did the numbers and how they calculate before or after taxes, 65 to 10% is right what the stock market's historical returns have been. So... We're going to need to grow our money, that's the point of that, uh, that, that point there, to, in order to keep pace with inflation. We're going to talk a little bit more when we get a little bit further along here. But next point, we must diversify. So what is diversification? Ecclesiastes 11 verse 2 tells us, Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. To put it in modern vernacular, Solomon is simply saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket pretty sound advice if you ask me. And what does that mean? Usually this means that people want you, we want to have multiple types of assets. We don't want all of our investment in just one thing. Okay, so like if everyone or if someone put all of their money into Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin has gone down more than 90% sometimes. That would be a tough pill to swallow if all of your wealth was in something that went down 90%. Well, some people have all of their wealth in their business. Well, businesses can close and have lawsuits and be bankrupt. And some people have all their wealth in their home. And there can be earthquakes and floods and tornadoes. Like there are all sorts of risks. And so the point is we don't want all of our, our risks concentrated in just one type of asset. And we want to be able to uh, spread it out. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of diversification in just a moment because it ties right into the next point, which is number five, you need to know your risk tolerance. This is very important in terms of self-awareness when it comes to investing. If you see this, how would you feel? Some people would say, let's go now. Oh, that's exciting. I'd love to go on a roller coaster. Other people, I heard some... Uh, some voices already shout out like, no, 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 keep me as far away from that as possible. That right there tells you that there are different levels of risk tolerance in each individual. Because how would you feel when you saw this roller coaster? And imagine if this was your investment portfolio. Some people would look at this and say, I can't eat. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm going to throw up. Some people would look at this and say, sweetheart, where's my checkbook? The stock market's on sale. I'm going shopping. Right? There, there are very different responses to the same exact stimulus here. And th th what's the difference? Risk tolerance. 
So we need to understand what our risk tolerance is. So understanding and tuning the risk meter is important when we think about investing. Here are a few levers or knobs, if you will, that we can adjust and think about and consider when it comes to our risk tolerance. Number one is our investment time horizon. That's just a fancy way of saying, when do you need the money? To make it very simple, the younger you are, the longer you have before you need the money because you've got a long career ahead of you, presumably you're in good health, and you don't, you're not about to retire anytime soon. But for someone who is older, at the end of their career or already in, a, in, in their retirement years, they don't have time to make up losses, right? So they have to protect their downside. So then the risk profile of an older retiree versus a young student fresh out of college, completely different. But of course, this could, there are all sorts of exceptions in the middle as well, you understand. Number two, knowledge. Never invest in something you don't understand. Remember that? Point number one. And so, but there are also varying degrees of knowledge. For someone who is a builder, someone who has lived in an area for a long time, someone who is a, who's a real estate agent, the risk for that person investing in real estate is significantly lower than for someone perhaps like me who knows very little about those things. So your level of knowledge in the industry or about the asset or in the area, whatever it might be, can alter your risk tolerance as well. Number three, do you have other assets or other income streams? Meaning whatever your, at, your investment is, how much are you dependent on it? Is this your only nest egg for your retirement or do you have social security? Do you have a pension? Do you have an inheritance somewhere else? Do you have some other source of income? Because if the less you need this money to rely on, then the, the more risk you're able to take with it because if that money drops in value, you're still protected because you have other sources of assets or income. And number four is what we discussed earlier. It's just your personal risk appetite or aversion. Some people would love to go skydiving. That's just, that's just their nature. They're risk takers. Others of us, no way. We're never going to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, the people that ask would be the insurance companies. <laughs> the insurance companies will, will tell you who, uh, who's the riskier type of people based on their insurance premiums. And so we need to understand our own risk tolerance by measuring against these things. And then how we invest has to be determined based on our own self-evaluation and our risk profile. Because if we are outside of our risk tolerance and we invest in something that is far more aggressive than we're comfortable with, that's when people lose sleep at night, okay? And so we don't want that to happen. So risk and returns, we have to re realize this, and that is that all investments have risk. I've mentioned this multiple times. I just cannot underscore this enough. There is no such thing as a risk-free investment. I'm going to make an aside here. There is one thing that most experts call a risk-free investment, and those are T-bills, treasury bills, short-term government bonds. But guess what? The, it is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, as long as they don't default. And you remember a few weeks ago, we almost defaulted. So this risk is not zero, you realize. Even though in the investment world, that is what's considered a risk-free investment, it's still not risk-free because there is always a possibility that Congress might do something stupid. And so here we see that higher returns also always correspond with higher risk. This is a fact of life. Somebody promises you an investment that's going to be 10% rate of return, it's going to be higher risk than the investment that is returning a 1% rate of return. 
We just have to keep that in mind. And also, debt and leverage magnifies the risk even more. So never borrow money to invest. That's just a bad idea. And I don't want to go into all of that, but that is the reason why people jump off skyscrapers when their investments go bad, is if they are over leveraged and they are over the barrel. So this is an important slide here. So I want to really make sure we understand this. We talked last week about short-term and long-term division of our money. Everything that is uh, less than five years versus five years or longer. There are different risk profiles to these different types of assets. And if you look at the quadrant here, for short-term investing, the low-risk type of investments are things like savings accounts, certificate of deposits, U.S. Treasury bonds, money market funds. And these are sometimes known as cash equivalents. They might pay us a little interest, and, but the principal doesn't go down, right? Like the dollar figure is going to stay the same or go up with interest. But notice that over the long term, down here, those very same investments are considered high risk. Now, why is that? That's exactly right. It's because over the long term, the little bit of interest that we may earn in those types of accounts do not keep pace with inflation. So these types of short-term cash savings vehicles all are almost guaranteed to lose purchasing power compared to inflation. Therefore, over the long term, it is high risk. But then under the short term, under five years, the high risk stuff are like the stock market, real estate, land, and gold. Well, why is it risky in the short term? Well, we just looked at the roller coaster. You know, the price of uh, stocks can go up and down like this. And even though real estate and land, the price may not go up and down, it's not as volatile, there are closing costs, right? So it takes a long period of time to recoup that. And then gold is also volatile as well. The price can go up and down. However, over the long term, why are they low risk? Well, I'll just give you one example. The stock market, measured by the S&P 500, over any 20-year period in its history, has never lost money. I repeat that. If you hold the S&P 500 for a period of 20 years, any 20 years, it has never lost money. And over the long term, it has consistently beaten inflation. Inflation, if it's about 3 and 3.5% 3 average, the return of the stock market, between 6 to 10%, depending on what scale you use. And real estate is one of the best hedges against inflation, based on history. Same with land. And uh, gold, I have mixed feelings about gold myself personally, but it is frequently uh, recommended as a hedge against inflation. And so knowing this type of risk, uh, risk profile of these assets, well, what do we do? Well, the simple answer is we just cut off the high-risk portion of the table. All of the money that we need to keep in our short term for savings, we keep in those cash equivalent type of accounts, whereas the longer term stuff, we keep in higher yielding, higher returning uh, investment vehicles. And uh, this is one way that we can diversify, okay? diversification, how we don't put all of our eggs in one basket. So this takes us to point number six. Don't try to get rich quick, don't be greedy, and don't speculate. This is the hard one because we think we're smarter when we see an amazing deal to be had. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase it. Proverbs 13, 11. 
And Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. I want to tell you the story about tulip mania. I want you to go back to the 1600s in the Netherlands. There was a craze over tulips. Yes, the flower, tulips. They were being speculated upon. The tulip bulbs were being bought up in a frenzy. They said that at one point, the price of a tulip bulb went up 1,100% in one month. At the peak, one tulip bulb sold for as much as 10 times the annual wage of a middle-class man. So let's just say, let's just say $50,000, just to make it easy for us. Can you imagine one tulip bulb being sold for half a million dollars? That's 10 times $50,000. That's how crazy the tulip mania got. People were buying futures contracts for tulips that haven't even been grown yet. And then they would sell the contracts to someone else for three times what they paid for it today. That's called speculation. And that's the beginning of the very first bubble, investment bubble. And eventually, the bubble burst. People stopped buying, and whoever got left holding the bag lost everything. The entire Dutch economy tanked. They had to have a whole bailout process. And you might be thinking, huh, history certainly repeats, doesn't it? For those of us old enough to remember, in the late 1990s, there was a thing called the dot-com bubble. You remember that? And then in 2008, there was the housing bubble. Well, it seems that human nature has not learned our lesson, and we just go from one mania phase to another. Now, I want to be clear. Is there anything inherently inappropriate with purchasing, growing, selling, even collecting tulips? No. The problem was not the tulip, was not the asset. The problem was how people related to it and what people did with the asset. And so this is where a lot of people get this idea, oh, the stock market is always a casino. It can be a casino, just like even tulips can become a casino. But how do we tell the difference? between speculation and investing. Okay, this is a core principle we have to understand. What's the difference? Okay, speculation and investing. Number one, speculating is hoping for quick riches. That's the core motivating factor. I want to get rich and I want to get rich quick. Investing is patient and steady for the long term. Speculating, the motive, again, is to get rich, whereas investing, generally, the motive is to meet some need. I have a target, I have a goal, I'm moving towards something, I need to provide for my family, pay for college, uh, pay for retirement, what uh, what not. Speculation is based on arbitrary price movement, whereas investing is based on expected productivity of an asset. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine, you were back in the 1600s in uh, in Holland, and somebody was coming up to you and they said, this tulip bulb, I bet, I just bought it for $100, I bet someone else would buy it for $200. I'll sell it to you for 150. That is speculation. Because you don't care. It didn't matter if it was a tulip. It could have been an onion. 
It could be like the garlic. It doesn't matter what it was. All they cared about was the price movement. Whereas, what if somebody else came to you and said, you know what? I'd like to start a tulip farm. And I'd like you to come in with me. I've done the math. Labor is going to cost this much. The fertilization and the soil preparation and the greenhouses and the, and the harvesting and the, you know, all of these things. And I think this business is going to be able to reach you know, all of Holland within the next year and then maybe all of Western Europe in the year after that. That person is starting a business. He's looking at the productivity of the asset of the business, not merely looking at the price mo- movement. Okay? You see the totally different perspective between the investor and the speculator. The speculator asks, what is the price? What's the price that I can buy for it? And what's the price that I can sell it for? Whereas the investor asks, what is the value of this business? What is the value of this asset over the long term, particularly? So Warren Buffett once said this. He was being asked, how do you know what is speculation? He gave a few of these explanations and finally he said, You know, speculation is like pornography. I can't totally explain it, but I know it when I see it. And so it's one of those things that once you're in it long enough, you recognize it when you see it. All right, principle number seven. We need to value our time. Time is the one asset we all have, but it's also the one asset that none of us can make any more of. It can't grow, so we have to value it properly. So your money should be working for you, not you working some more for your money. Right? The point of investing is you have your cash or your, your, your financial assets and you want to put it to work so that it grows, not you being a slave to the money. It shouldn't be another job. And our time is also one of the talents that we need to improve for the Lord. We've got to keep everything in balance here. And so I've often, I shouldn't say often, a couple times I've heard people say things like, oh, I want to get into real estate because it's passive income. I'm like... Have you ever been a landlord? It's not passive. Have you ever had to evict someone? Fortunately, I never have, but I know people who have. It's not fun. And then cleaning up the mess afterwards, of course, is not fun. And so you have to make the calculation between the cost in your time as well as the cost in your, uh, the financial costs. And another one, multi-level marketing. Oh boy. People have told me that's an investment. That's not an investment. It's another job. And I'm not going to get too far down that road to tell you what I think about that kind of job, but it's not an investment if it is requiring you to basically work at it as a part-time job. Okay, another example. Some, uh, some people might say, oh, I'm an investor. I'm an investor in cryptocurrency. I'm an investor in Bitcoin. I'm an investor in stock. And I spend all day in front of my computer checking the, gra- you know, the charts, and I'm like buying and selling and placing my you know, trades and my stop-loss option, you know, options and whatever that's not, re- you're not valuing your time. You have to val- calculate the amount of time that you're putting into it. So we need to be careful not to allow uh, something to overwhelm the time that we should be using for the Lord's service as well. P.T. Barnum once said, money is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. We need to be careful not to be chasing after it so much that we just spend all of our time obsessing over it. Okay? Investing should be money working for us not us working some more for our money. Okay, that takes us to number eight. We need to exercise discipline in buying and selling. So emotions are a big, big factor when it comes to investing. A lot of times we hear the headline news. 
buy, 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 you're going to miss out, or sell, 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 the sky is falling. And so there is a financial incentive for the, the newsmakers and the ad agencies and all of these channels to get people in a heightened state of emotion. And also the whole buying and selling, the trading, you know, there are people who make money with all the transaction costs. So we don't want to invest based on emotion or fads or headlines or, you know, those types of gimmicks. We want to ignore the noise. And sometimes less info is better. And so, believe it or not, the best investors in the world, they are not hovering over the computer screen watching every ticker move, you know, on their favorite stocks. You ask Warren Buffett, how does he spend his time? He's reading. He's not just watching the stock market, he's reading business financial reports and annual reports of the businesses that he's trying to buy. The greatest investor who ever lived does not sit in front of a computer watching the stock prices go up and down like this. Can you imagine that? But yet that's what the TV and the movies try to tell us what investing is. Well, you want to be regular, systematic, and you want to be in it for the long haul. Okay? There is a discipline to saving. And saving over the long term is the best path to growing our wealth. And the most important thing is to keep saving. One of, the big, uh, one of the biggest mistakes that people have is what's called the attempt to time the market. People say, oh, well, the stock market's gonna go down, so I'm not gonna buy in until it goes down. And then the next day, the market shoots up, and they never get in, and they lost all those gains. Or I'm just gonna you know, hold on because um, or, or, or yeah, I'm, I'm not going to invest because I'm going to wait until later, or I've got some excuse, and we buy and sell. Well, automate the thing. Take the emotions out of it. It also saves you time. So I'm just going to tell you what I do. I just have an automatic transfer, you know, for my retirement savings or the kids' college. It's just every month on a certain day, payday, is just automatic. I don't even think about it. Like, I actually help people manage their money, and I barely look at my investment portfolio. Like, once a month, I might go in there just to, you know, place the trades, and I, does, I wish I didn't even have to do that. And so automation takes the emotion out of it, and it becomes a habit. Just like when it comes to paying tithe, right? Just make it automatic, instinctive. Don't, we don't have to think about it. It just goes uh, as part of our normal routine. But this is another principle we have to remember. Luke 18, 22 to 23. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, this is talking to the rich young ruler, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. What's the point? Jesus has the prerogative to ask us to sell everything whenever he wants. I want to make that clear. When we are purchasing investments, there well may be times when Jesus taps us on the shoulder and say, hey, I need that. Maybe for a mission trip, maybe to build a church, maybe it's for, you know, something else. And I particularly, and I think some of us here understand, you know, what, what I mean when I say, if we believe that Jesus is coming soon, that there is a point in time in which money is not going to be worth anything anymore, except to be placed into the advancing the gospel to prepare a world for Jesus to come. And so this principle is always has to be in the mind of the Christian investor, understanding that we must have an exit plan because there is always the prerogative of Jesus to ask us to sell all. And it doesn't even have to be the end times because that rich young ruler, he didn't live anywhere near the end times. Jesus still asked him to sell all. And of course, Nicodemus and 
Others uh, in the early church did the same. So, but we need to understand the process to liquidate, all right? So that's the principle to apply. When we get into an investment, we have to understand how do we get out of an investment. And also we have to understand the overall makeup of our portfolio. If all of our investment is in an illiquid building or in a business or in some partnership, and when it comes time to sell, it takes two years or three years and a whole bunch of legal finagling and all these lawyers involved, we're, we might be missing the boat. So having a, an eye towards a diversification of the liquidity of our types of investments is also important to keep in mind. All right, point number nine, morality. Morality. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do should be the, to the glory of God, which must also include our investing. So we need to be thinking about ethical investing. How do we do that? There are really two perspectives, two ways to approach investing with an ethical mind. Number one, we can avoid investments that are directly involved with unethical products and industries. Or two, we can avoid any investment, whether there be companies or mutual funds or anything else, that contain even an indirect or incidental interest in any product or industry that could be deemed unethical. So to summarize, you can, you can have an ethical perspective in which we are culpable morally for our direct investment decisions, or we can take the position that we are also morally culpable for indirect moral uh, actions that take place beyond the initial decision that we make. So if we buy a company, or we buy a mutual fund, let's say, and that mutual fund then goes and buys a company that we don't approve of, we're also guilty of that. Or say we buy a, into a stock like uh, Costco, and Costco sells alcohol. And in that case, then we are also guilty of selling alcohol as an indirect, secondary, or tertiary, incidental uh, type of event. So which of these two perspectives is uh, correct? I want to look at some of these verses to give us some guidance here. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 10. Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. Notice very carefully what Paul is saying here. Paul says, do not associate with sexually immoral people. But then he gives a caveat. He gives a disclaimer, an exception. He says, but I'm not talking about completely disassociating with sexually immoral people in the world because that's, he's actually saying that's impossible. If you're going to be an active agent in the marketplace, he's talking about the greedy and the swindlers and idolaters. If you want to be a light influencing people, what he's saying is, you're going to be around these people. So what he's saying in terms of what we're saying is, there comes a point in which having morally pure uh, interactions, even in our indirect associations, becomes untenable. But within our direct association, particularly he's talking about within the church, we need to be very careful with that. Now, Matthew 5, 43 to, 4, uh, 43 to 45, For he, God, maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So if we take the view that we are responsible for every indirect action that results from even the good things that we do, then doesn't every evil ultimately 
fall back on God. God then will become morally culpable for every injustice and every evil that's done because he blesses those who do it. That's interesting, okay? So the application is this. We need to recognize what Scripture does and doesn't require of us. And don't create a moral rule beyond what God requires. We need to make sure that all of our direct interactions are morally pure and that we are following God's clearly revealed will. We We then do our best with the remaining indirect interactions, recognizing that we live in an imperfect and sinful world and that we shouldn't neglect the major duties while quibbling over minor matters to not strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And ultimately, many of these decisions come to the individual conscience. Some people may be uncomfortable shopping at a place like Costco because they sell alcohol. But for other people, they say, well, I'm not purchasing the alcohol. That's not a direct action that I'm taking. But that decision I do not see as a clear, thus saith the Lord, that we must avoid every situation in which someone else might perpetrate evil because of the good that we do. You understand my point? But nevertheless, we need to do the best we can okay, to, to not allow our good to uh, indirectly cause evil somewhere else in the world. Another example of this is the widows and her two mites. Jesus blessed her commended her for putting everything that she had into the temple treasury, but that's the same treasury from where the money came out to pay Judas to betray him. She was not morally culpable for that. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. Deuteronomy 15.66. An interesting aside here is who are these many nations that Israel were to lend to? By the very definition, they're heathen. So God clearly does not intend for Israel to not associate economically with those who perpetrate evil. So ostensibly, the investment dollars that Israel lends to other heathen nations will indirectly support evil, but God actually does not hold them morally culpable for that. All right, so we need to hasten along here. Point number 10, we need to start now. So in this chart here, we see two investors, investors one and two. The first investor starts investing at 25 and sets aside $5,000 a year for 10 years in a row and stops investing at age 34. So investor one, which is this lady in the blue, invests $50,000 of her own money, and she doesn't invest anymore. Investor number two starts at age 35 and invests $5,000 each year for 30 years in a row until age 65. So he puts in $150,000 over 30 years. At the end of this time period, when they both hit age 65, notice that the lady in the blue has $787,000 versus $611,000 for investor two. So the lesson here is you need to start early. You need to take advantage of the power of compound interest by making time your ally. Compounding interest happens over time. The best time to purchase or plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And just like the the parable of the talents. The, the master was away for a long time. Okay? So it took them a long time to double their money. And so we need to start now. So this takes us to our scorecard. Okay? So we, we covered 10 points, but the last point starting now is, is not necessarily a, princ- uh, a principle you can use for a scorecard. Do I understand 
what I'm investing in? Can it beat inflation? Is it low cost? Is it diversified? Is it non-speculative? How much time does it take me to manage this? Is this an acceptable amount of risk? Is it liquid? What is the level of liquidity? Is it an acceptable level of liquidity? And do I have complete moral clarity on what I am investing in? There are nine points total. And you can use this to evaluate different types of investments. For in my case, and by the way, your scorecard may be totally different than mine. For investing, or investing in real estate, I only have five out of nine points. Uh, but for someone else, you know, they might have a different score because this might be something much more down their alley. But do I understand how real estate works? I believe I do. Can it beat inflation? It certainly has in the past. Is it low cost? Not generally. Is it diversified? Not the way that I invest because uh, to own a home is probably going to cost you know, a huge chunk of my asset. But if you're a super wealthy person and you're buying up you know, huge tracts of homes, maybe it's diversified. I don't know. Is it non-speculative? I don't think it is. How much time is it to manage? It's too much time for me to manage, but for someone else, it might be an acceptable amount of time to manage. Is it an acceptable amount of risk? I believe it is for me. Is it liquid? Not necessarily. Do I have moral clarity on it? Yes, I do. Right? So this is how I can rate the type of investment, whether it is appropriate and fitting for me. And we can look at the individual stocks. So for me, that's only four out of nine points. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but you know, th this is just an example of how I look at it. The active mutual fund scorecard. Uh, this is generally, they're a, a bit high cost for my liking, but I want to pause a moment on the next one, which is index funds. The okay, index funds and ETF scorecard. As far as I'm concerned, this is the highest score I, can, I have found in any single investment. Index funds, what are they? It is a basket of assets that is tracking an index. So it is not manually selected by an active fund manager. It's like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or you know, the Dow Jones or whatever it might be. And it's following an index based on an algorithm, basically. And so as a result, you know exactly what it's purchasing. You know exactly what its mandate is. You know exactly what the makeup and everything is at any given time. And you know exactly what purpose it is for. And has it beat inflation? Yes, it has. You know, most index funds have. Is it low cost? And because it is largely algorithmically automated and uh, managed that way, uh, it is very low cost. Uh, sometimes for investing $10,000 in, in an index fund, it might cost you $3 per year. Okay, so very affordable. Is it diversified? That's actually why they were built. Sometimes over 500 or several thousand uh, stocks or bonds in one single fund. Is it non-speculative? I don't believe it is. It takes no time to manage. You can basically get them in 30 minutes. Acceptable amount of risk? Generally speaking, yes. Liquid, they can be traded on any business day that they're open. But do I have complete moral clarity? Not all the time. Sometimes I do for certain types, but not all of them. That's why I, leave, I left that unchecked. But it is, this is what I believe is the best place for most people to begin their investment journey as far as doing your own homework and understanding what index funds or ETFs are. Now, of course, everybody asks about Bitcoin, so I just threw this one in here. Okay, Bitcoin, uh, for me, actually has gone up in the rankings. It used to score much lower, but I've done a fair bit of research and reading into it. But I will just mention this about Bitcoin. I do believe Bitcoin is a legitimate asset or commodity. It is sim similar to digital gold. That's kind of the way to think about it. However, the volatility and some of the regulatory risk and uh, the cost of doing business and the risk of 
and, and the hassle of self-custody uh, of your own Bitcoin is generally, I think, still too difficult for most people. But if you cho choose to get into Bitcoin, keep it a very small percentage of your portfolio. That would be my suggestion. And so how do you put this all together? Okay, this is just a representation. This is not a recommendation. This is a representation of how different types of assets with their different qualities can be constructed together into a portfolio. This is called asset allocation in which the strengths of one asset can outweigh and counterbalance the weaknesses of others. And when you construct a portfolio in totality like this, the hope and idea is that you are able to end up with a scorecard that is at in aggregate, in aggregate at a higher score than an individual asset by itself. Okay, I know we've got a picture going on here. But uh, so the idea or the hope is that you're able to create an overarching portfolio with very diversified portfolio with different types of assets constructed together to get you as close to a fully uh, checked off scorecard as is possible. Uh, and so this takes us to the end of our presentation. I think I went a little bit over, but uh, hopefully this gives you at least a starting point. As I mentioned from the start, this is not a comprehensive explanation on how to invest or how to open your accounts and how to place trades and what to buy. That is not what we're about, but hopefully gives you some ideas of where to start. So let us bow our heads. I'll pray and then we can have questions after that. All right, let's, let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us counsel uh, on how to manage ourselves when it comes to such things as investing and growing our money. And Lord, we are looking forward to being in heaven where we don't have to worry about such things anymore, where rust and, and moth will no longer destroy or inflation erode the purchasing power of your funds. But give us wisdom, Lord, to know what to do and how to be wise stewards of the talents that you have placed into our hands and that you might receive your own with interest when you come. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.